Alex Tabarak. Uh, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great. Um, and you can, uh, you're a professor at George Mason University. Do you have any other uh, affiliations? A uh, lot of them, I guess. I guess I'm uh, a senior fellow or something of that nature at uh, Mercatus. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch of them going different places, advisor to a bunch of uh, startups, that kind of thing. Okay, great. And so you are, um, so you were involved in uh, Operation uh, Warp Speed, is that right? Uh, sort of. So what happened was early on in the uh, pandemic, I was asked to give a talk to the Council of Economic Advisors and the Domestic Policy Council of the Trump White House. Uh, so and they asked me to talk about using incentives to speed up the delivery of vaccines. And uh, this is before Operation War Speed. And I get on the call and it turns out that they have invited me and Michael Creamer, who is the Nobel Prize winning economist, number one world's expert uh, on this uh, question. Um, Anyway, I was very uh, forthright and, uh, you know, just saying, look, the economy is losing, you know, tens of billions every week, hundreds of billions uh, a month. We need to do something. Um, we need to accelerate vaccines. This is going to be a something which is going to pay off really well. I talked about human challenge trials and, you know, was really going into it. Uh, turned out uh, Michael Creamer was in complete agreement, even on the like radical stuff like human challenge trials. Uh, which is very fortunate. It gave me some credibility because uh, he has the Nobel Prize. And after the call, the the White House, the people at Domestic Policy Council, asked us to write a report. Uh, and Michael got a bunch of other economists together, and we did that. And we proposed something much like what became Operation Warp Speed. Um, I don't know what influence uh, we had, uh, you know, people, all the top people were on the call. So maybe we had some influence um, or maybe we just reassured people that they were going in the right direction. Do you, th- so you said you and uh, Kramer agreed on these things. Uh, all the economists I see, you know, I'm not reading a representative sample of economists. Uh, we're basically in accord with, you know, vaccines are important and do this quickly and human challenge trials and, and all that. Well, was this a, was this a, you think a consensus view in the field or a near consensus or how, how, how would you characterize it? Is it just a George Mason thing or do you think most economists were on the same page here? I think it was pretty surprising actually that at least many of the economists who were publicly, who were speaking publicly about this, um, were became radicalized um, uh, as the, as this uh, you know as the pandemic got longer and longer and longer, uh, they became more radicalized. Not just the economists, but you know I've been a longtime critic of the FDA, um, you know pointing out that there's an invisible graveyard, right? Which is when the FDA delays a, a good drug, then people die who would have lived. But they're buried in this invisible graveyard. It's hard to see. And um, it was amazing to me that the pandemic brought this home to a lot of people. And so you started to see articles in like the New York Times. Uh, Ezra Klein and people like that um, became very anti-FDA or at least arguing that the FDA needs to speed up. So that was kind of remarkable to see that uh, change uh, over time. And I think economists were in the same boat. Yeah. And, you know, what they did was, you know, something that people didn't think they could do. They could get the vaccines that quickly. Uh, people were surprised. Is Do you think the lesson from all of this was that, uh, 
you know, we could have done like, okay, let's say cancer was a new disease and it was killing, I don't know how many people cancer kills a year, hundreds of thousands, millions. I have, I have, I have no clue. Right. But if the cancer was just like a new thing and we said, oh my God, we can't, we can't put up with this. We're going to have to do a uh, Manhattan project to, uh, you know, get rid of cancer. I mean, is this something we, we, we could do much faster, but there's just no sense of urgency. Do you, do you think that this, you know, there are broad lessons here that we could apply to other areas of uh, medicine and science? I think there are narrow lessons uh, and people are probably taking it uh, too broad. So I'm a huge supporter, obviously, of Operation uh, War Speed. I think it was a, the government program which has had the highest benefit to cost ratio of anything since, you know, let's say the Manhattan Project. Um, just a tremendous, tremendous um, success. And now people are talking about, well, we need an Operation War Speed for X, for Y, for Z, for cancer. And I don't think it works out so easily because... There were a few very special factors. Number one was that we'd actually done a lot of research prior. So, you know, the genetic code of the virus was uploaded uh, to the web something like January 11th. By January 13th, a vaccine had already been designed by, uh, uh, by uh, Bishop and uh, people at the NIH working with people at Moderna. So it only took a couple of days to design the vaccine. Um, what really took the time, right, was doing the clinical trials. And the clinical trials were the most expensive part of drug development. And the government came in and supported that. Also, the government said, Operation Warp Seed said, look, start building the factories that you need to manufacture these vaccines. Start building them now. Uh, ordinarily, the vaccine manufacturer, they're going to wait until the vaccine has been approved and, you know, it's working and it's approved. Now we'll start building the factory. And then a little while later, a year later, maybe we'll have it ready to go. And so Operation Warp Speed said, start building now. Maybe it's going to turn out that your vaccine doesn't work. That's OK. We're willing to take on that risk. Uh, but for we want the, vac- the factory to be ready the moment a vaccine is approved. Now, those two things paying for the clinical trial and uh, accelerating the building of the factories. That's all off-the-shelf stuff. There's no big research and development. It's a technology problem. It's not a science problem. So the science, I don't see, we, we already support the science a lot with the university funding and, you know, there's lots of money for cancer research. And, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't support it more, but you can't accelerate those you can't accelerate the science the same way you can accelerate the technology, you the same way you can accelerate just the business decisions to start building the factory now rather than later. So I think the areas where an operation of warp speed could be successful are fairly limited. They may be important. Like, you know, we just uh NASA just sent up a spaceship to uh bang into the asteroid and knock it off course. And if we had to do that in real time. Yeah, we could build, you know, get the rocket ships and, you know, the SpaceX and, you know, recommission some. But, but it, it, so we can solve technology problems, business problems, speed those up, not so much science problems. Mm. So, yeah, so vaccines were, you know, a proven technology. And you said they developed that vaccine. Uh, they developed the first vaccine um, right away. Um, the but something like, you know, was it, so was the first vaccine they developed over the weekend? That was that was one of the mRNA vaccines. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So they had, so they had this technology. So the mRNA technology um, was, I guess, somebody knew that that it pr- could work. 
Um, and they, you know, and they were ready to do it right away, but the, the mRNA had not been used before, right? It had not been used in a successful vaccine before. So, um, it, uh, at least on a commercial scale. So Moderna had been investing millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and so had, uh, BioNTech. Um, they'd been, you know, BioNTech, you know, hired, you know, Catalina, Karolika, you know, this researcher who couldn't get money from the government. She went to Pfizer, BioNTech. Anyway, so Operation Warp Seed is also a big success for the venture capitalists because they had been funding Moderna and BioNTech without any profits for like 10 years. You know, they're just spending all of this money developing this technology. There's no, there's no products, but they had produced like, you know, small runs of drugs and vaccines. So they knew the technology uh, could work. It was just, they hadn't had the opportunity to scale it at a commercial level. Yeah. So, okay. So there was this technology that, you know, you needed the, you needed the government support. You needed cutting red tape. You needed to buy, uh, you know, the uh, purchase, purchase orders. I guess what, I, what I'm wondering is uh, maybe there is, it, it, you know, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but, you know, could, is it possible that there could be some technology out there for, for cancer that, you know, if we did this, if we gave the same treatment, if we said, you know, we, we're going to help you with the um, trials, we're going to help you with the liability issues, right. um, we're going to help you buy even, you know, buying purchase, you know, purchase orders and, and things like that. Um, is it at least, you know, plausible? And we went to like, you know, the, the, the biggest biotech companies and said, you know, we're, we're going to trust you. Just give us your best idea. We'll do the purchase orders. We'll do the speeding up the trials, uh, everything. Is it possible we could get some kind of similar result or you think, no, it's just the vaccine thing is unique? Yeah, I think the vaccine thing is fairly unique. Another way of thinking about it is, look, you're really just accelerating progress. So let's even take a long time scale, like 10 years. So in 10 years, do we expect to have a cure for cancer? No. Right. I mean, I expect things are getting better. Right. And, you know, there's a little bit of progress every year. And I would rather have the uh, treatments of 2032 than the treatments of 2022. But even if we brought the treatments of 2032 and brought them, you know, to 2022, it wouldn't be quite the miracle that the vaccines were. We'd all be very happy about that. But, you know, it wouldn't be the miracle um, uh, a change. You know, where I think something like Operation More Speed might work is. Just I've just thrown this out as an example, but um, protecting the uh, electrical grid uh, from like a, uh, a from a solar storm, right? So that's again one of these events which happens sort of once every hundred years, and but it, but a bad solar storm could literally you know wipe out the internet, wipe out computers. You know, this happened during the early in the Victorian era. It wiped out the telegraph, the first telegraph. And you could just imagine, like, how bad that would be. I mean, uh, you've seen in Texas, you know, the electrical grid goes down and, you know, uh, it's a, incredibly expensive. Um, but we could protect ourselves from that by burying the lines, uh, insulating the lines. We have that technology, but the electrical companies are not willing to spend all that money, you know, to update all of their equipment. But that's something that a operation, you know, warp speed a program could probably do. So how did the, how did the Trump administration uh, find you in the first place? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I'd written a little something for Mercatus on using prizes and things like that. So I think maybe 
maybe somebody said Michael Kramer and somebody else said, well, we need some conservative guy. And, you know, so I, I, I don't know how, how they find me, how they found me, but, uh, something along those lines. Yeah. And so, you know, and what month was this when you, uh, when you, uh, had that call? Uh, so it's a good question. So it was pretty early on. It would have been like March or April, something like that. I can't quite remember. Okay. The other thing which people don't know or don't remember, uh, accurately is actually the council of economic advisors had written a report in 2019 talking about the potential trillion dollar loss of a pandemic. So that was purely coincidental, but they were in kind of a good place to be thinking about these issues. And the head of this, the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Thomas uh, Philipson, uh, he was a University of Chicago guy. And so he, he, he'd written about FDA delay. Um, so he knew my work. So maybe it was through him or something like that. But he again was in a good spot to coincidentally, but was in a good spot to give Trump good advice. Mm. So yeah, so you put stuff on the internet, and somehow you know somebody found you. I guess that's I guess that's how it usually works. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Is uh so you so the so this was so your views were you know radical outside the mainstream for economists. I mean, I used to talk about uh, columnists like you know Ezra Klein, people uh, you know people even uh, people on the left, people on the right. This was these were you know popular ideas. I, I saw you know just in the circles that the people I follow online. This but these people this wasn't the consensus view, or even seems like a majority view in the public health community, right? And so public health, my my understanding is they were much more cautious. Um, you know what do you you know I have ideas here, but what do you sort of attribute that difference to? Yeah, so I think they they weren't popular views at the beginning. They became more popular uh, over time. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the public health people. F- f- I mean, there was a New York Times piece uh, early on looking at all of the things we could possibly do to accelerate a vaccine. Okay, and it sort of gave you a um, options. You know, so you could be the vaccine czar and do this and do this. And even under the most optimistic scenarios, we wouldn't have gotten a vaccine. So, you know, until much later. Um, so I think there was a feeling that this just wasn't possible to accelerate it that much. The underestimated, you know, uh, what could be done. In fact, we talked, the team was Michael Kramer and all these economists, myself. We started talking very early on with a bunch of people in the field. And we said, you know, what would it take to what to get a uh, a vaccine approved in under a year? You know, uh, how much would it would it cost? He said, "Oh, that's impossible. It can't be done." And then you'd sort of say, "Well, what if we gave you a billion dollars?" And then they begin to like think about it, and and you know, just nobody had ever offered this kind of money to them before. You know, nobody had they hadn't really thought about it. So when you came with that kind of uh, money and, it, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what Operation Morph Speed spent like 15, 18 billion was not a huge amount, certainly not a huge amount relative to the benefit. But people in the medical sphere had never thought about, well, what, how could we, what could we do if we had a billion dollars? Well, we could start doing this and this and this. And once you got them thinking about it, then uh, it became clear that maybe something could happen. 
Yeah. And I mean, the, the, you know, the thing about the pessimism, I guess what's a little bit confusing is about it. Uh, Cause okay. You had the MRNA technology. Nobody knew for sure um, how great that would be, but you also had vaccines developed on uh, you know, traditional with traditional vaccine technology, right? I mean, and the Chinese yeah. had a vaccine and the Russians had a vaccine and I, you know, they, they were not as good, but they, you know, they, they, they could have, you know uh, you know, they, they could have contributed to a return to normalcy. I think they, uh, they protect pretty well against extreme outcomes. So, you know, why, why why didn't anyone like people couldn't foresee mrna why couldn't people foresee that you could have like a you know a sinovac or or something like that pretty fat pretty quickly yeah it's, a, it's an excellent question and uh i actually think uh we should have made you know the one thing that operation more speed did which i was a little bit worried about is we made all of these high-tech bets and we did not make a bet on a low-tech uh, you know, traditional uh, vaccine. Uh, and so we were arguing that we ought to make a deal with China that we'll give you some mRNA if that if it works and you give us some traditional stuff, if yours works and, you know, we'll make the swap. Of course, with Trump, that that kind of deal you know, with China wasn't likely uh, to happen. Um, but why people weren't more optimistic, you know, yeah, I don't know, because you're absolutely right. The Chinese also did a great job. And I think the Chinese vaccines, as you say, they're pretty good. Uh, they're better. I think they're better than people think because there's a little bit of propaganda on both sides, right? You know about how well these vaccines work. Yeah, although the Chinese, interestingly, have not have not vaccinated their elderly yet, so it's it works. But the the the, the public choice failures are not simply you know an American problem. It seems to be this, this yeah. is a, 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 yeah the the insanity of what the Chinese have done. I mean, I, it's very peculiar uh, to me that they can literally nail people inside of their apartments. But uh, they're not willing to, you know, greatly encourage people, elderly people to get a vaccine, which is going to save their lives. It's very, very bizarre costs that they've willingly undertaken. Yeah, although it does sort of remind me of the American response. I mean, we are we are more willing to do lockdowns or masking for everyone than we are mandatory. Mandatory vaccines seem to cause a lot more. Uh, pushback. Um, yes. So you know, maybe there's maybe there's some you know we're just like them after all. I mean, maybe there's you know they're a little bit more able to lock people down, but it seems like nobody wants to nobody wants to force people to take vaccines against against their will. Although you know it's 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 strange why they don't go you know more. You know, my uh, my opinion of the China has just come down to you know they're yeah one of the one of the things you said in your I watched one of your talks um, that you know you got worried about COVID early because you saw an authoritarian government um, shut down early and you look at the revealed preferences and you thought well they must care about economic growth much more than they care about saving lives and I look at that yeah. now and I see their what they've done to their economic growth and I think maybe yeah. our entire model of what motivates you know this regime was completely off. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, I got that wrong. I, it, yeah, yeah, I did think that if anything, the Chinese were more concerned about GDP than human rights, and oddly, that seems you know yeah. uh, not to have been the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be you know, it could be you know, human rights. It could be you know, saving people. It could be just power and right. control. I mean, there, there's just there's something yeah. going on here, and it's not a yeah simple story of uh, economic growth. Um, so you know, this is a. Um, did they ever? Did they ever consult with you after you did that report? Did they ever call you or ask for anything uh, after that? Yeah, so we we revised the report a number of times, and we were in contact uh, with them as well as with the with the British government. And later, we became advisors to the World Bank and a bunch of different governments, uh, you know, around the world. So I was kind of, you know, called in to 
and speak with people in Colombia and Guatemala and you know all over the world. So that was quite quite an exciting time. <laughs> yeah. How close do you think they came to um, uh, doing uh, human cha- challenge trials? Is it do you just they feel like? I mean, I, I read um, Paul Mango's book on Operation Warp Speed, and I you know I, I saw the part where he talked about it. it. Doesn't really provide much of a satisfying explanation, like oh, you know, people might you know people have ethical concerns, so therefore we didn't do it. Um, you know, do you think that it was ever? Didn't the British? They were. Um, the British, I, I thought, were at least closer to doing, or did, did they even do it like yes. later on in the pandemic? Yeah, the British eventually did, um, and yeah, again, that was another bizarre thing. I mean, I think people there was a huge amount of status quo bias, right, um, or omission commission fallacy, right. So uh, the way I explain it is 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 this: even when people parents are thinking about uh, should I get my child, you know, vaccinated, let's say pre-COVID. And, you know, one of the things that parents, I think, think about implicitly in their head is that if I choose to have my child vaccinated and something bad happens, rare side effect, it'll be my fault. I will have taken an action which caused them to get sick and I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to feel terrible. I will have done something uh, to harm them. Well, if I don't get the child vaccinated and the child gets sick, well, that's nature. That's bad luck. That's ill fortune. It wasn't something which I did. And I think people opposed a lot of uh, so-called medical ethicists and bioethicists uh, opposed human challenge trials because they felt, well, if we do this and someone gets sick, it'll have been my fault. We will have done that. And to both of these ways of thinking, my response has been, look, it's not about you. Okay, You have to take your feelings, your emotions out of the equation. It's not about whether you're going to feel guilty or not. Just do the thing which increases expected value. Do the thing which is best for society as a whole or best for your your child and take your emotions and feelings out of it. And that was very, very hard, apparently, for non-economists or, uh, you know, uh, uh, or normal people, <laughs> let's say, uh, to do. Though, I think all of the... A lot of the things which I criticize the government for acting too slowly with COVID, they are doing on the whole much better with monkeypox. Um, so there, I think there will be human challenge trials for monkeypox. They've, they've uh, put in requests uh, to do that. Uh, a bunch of places went to first doses first, um, which I had argued for COVID to delay that second dose, get more doses widespread uh, of first doses, get it, get it to more people. Um, we didn't do that in the United States. We did it in Canada. Uh, Britain did it. Uh, but a bunch of places uh, in San Francisco have just said, well, we don't care what the CDC says. We're going to do first doses first for monkeypox. So I, I think we are all, all of the criticism and talk, while it may not have moved things on COVID as much as I wanted, uh, that has generated more support. For doing things for monkeypox. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is an optimistic story, right? Government, you know, it's, I guess, I mean, depending on, you know, how you look at it, government failed. Um, and the next time, and this is what I recently talked to Tyler, and this is, you know, his characterization of it. And, you know, next time it, it, it got better. I mean, nobody, it's not like the Biden administration has a press conference as, you know, the Trump administration was right and public health and, you know, and some of the people we were listening to were wrong. But, you know, pe- the, the better argument and the more rational policy sort of did 
did win in the end. Is, is that how you see it too? Sort of. I, I think that's reasonable. It's sort of, uh, it's not that rationality wins so much. I think it's, it's almost muscle memory. Um, so I have a paper looking at, uh, just prior to the pandemic, uh, the uh, Johns Hopkins University and The Economist and a bunch of groups put out this global health security index. Okay. And it uh, was, it ranked every country in the world based upon who was most prepared for a pandemic. Okay. And of course, it turns out the United States is number one, <laughs> which in retrospect, you know, looks totally wrong, but it's a serious index. Anyway, we, what my colleague and I do is we look at this index and we say, is there anything in this pandemic preparation index, which actually predicted which countries were prepared? And the answer is basically no, except if you, within the like previous three years, had had a uh, other virus scare, you know, like the avian flu, like H1N1, um, then you were a little bit faster. Uh, so it's kind of that muscle memory, uh, idea. A lot, a lot, a lot of the Asian countries, you know, had had a more serious avian flu. So they were just were more prepared in that sense. And that's what mattered. Yeah. How many countries had an avian flu scare, uh, scare? Well, most of them, I mean, most of them, it was pretty widespread. Um, but you know, the United States got lucky that by the time it got here, we were able to, you know, contact trace and, and tamp it down so quickly that it didn't, uh, yeah. it didn't spread. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical that, you know, I think there's a confounding variable here because, you know, I live around a lot of Asians in Los Angeles County and my goodness, they take, they take COVID seriously. I mean, they are masking right. more than any other people, you know, you can see, and you look at, you know, they're still, they had an outdoor mask, man, outdoor mask mandate in Korea until a few months ago. I mean, yes, they still, yes. you know, they still have indoor. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's sort of to me, it's like, it's not that mysterious. <laughs> like, if we want, you know, if we, be, if we, if the rest of us behave like that, maybe things could be different. So, it seems to me that, like, you know, there's a cultural thing here that, you know, nobody's going to be able to easily capture uh, in the data that mattered a lot. Yeah. Now, as far as we can, t- now that, that could well be true. We did look at some cultural variables, like people do say, oh, the United States, individualistic culture, we weren't willing to sacrifice for the collective good. None of that uh, predicts anything. Okay, so you look at sort of world values surveys and you try, you know, maybe what they you weren't asking. What if you didn't look at surveys and you looked at, say, you know, if you wanted a proxy, you know, I would be, I'd look, I'd like, I'd like a proxy for uh, risk-taking behavior out of wedlock births. You know, right, I have something right, like right. that, right? Yeah, or crime, yeah. or violent crime. You know, I, East Asia would be at the bottom, and they would have been better. You know, this is, I, you know, I think there's something. I think there's something. You know, for value survey. I, I just, you know, I, I, I know a lot about polling, and it's just, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> you know, especially even within a nation, it, it's there's a lot unreliable. You start talking cross national and translations and all that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how how strong that is for for getting at these values actually. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. So, uh, great. I mean, do you have a, do you have aspirations to do other, you know, work, uh, other work for the government, um, to bring your ideas into, uh, <laughs> into fruition? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, a, a lot of, I do like to do work, which has, uh, some real world, you know, uh, connection. And, uh, so, you know, I'm always interested in promoting work, you know, as well as, uh, you know, doing it in the, you know, your office, get out there and talk about it and uh, uh, promote it and you know, try and see if you can have some impact in, in the world. 
Um, I don't particularly want to work for governments, um, but, uh, you know, I suppose if they call me, I'll answer the phone. Yeah. So, okay. So just, yeah, to go to like, uh, you know, just to move on to the next topic. Um, I recently read your, uh, your, um, you know, is it an article or a book? The, uh, the Bumal effect, why the price is so damn high. What what do you, what do you call that? Somewhere in between. It's a long article or a short book. (laughs) It's a long article Uh, or a short book. Okay. So it's a little monograph. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, monogram. That, that's the word. I'm, that's the word I'm looking for. So I, you know, to, you start with this graph, and it's like showing the things where prices have gotten more expensive, and things where th- uh, uh, the things that were the things have gotten more affordable. And I sort of always looked at that, and I've said this is just a graph of government involvement in something. Um, and this is sort of a libertarian story. You have healthcare and education. Right, you have car repair, which is not that okay. That doesn't right. really, that doesn't really fit. Uh, exactly. But then at the bottom, you have you know home appliances, clothing, and you know generally telecommunications. Uh, you know generally things that uh, government is not involved in. But your your idea is um, that it's it's having to do with the uh, the um, the expense of high skilled labor. So can, or labor in, it's labor in general, isn't it? So can you talk about sort of what the theory is and how it differs from the conventional sure. libertarian account? Sure. So one way of thinking about it is, uh, you know, I always say when you go to a poor country, you should get your hair cut, okay? Uh, because you go to India, and I was in India. In fact, I had my hair cut in India. Um, Are you a few with, ago. with Tyler? Tyler just got back from India. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Tyler and I were, were at a bunch of conferences uh, together. Um, so uh, why? Why should you get your hair cut in India? Well, the price of labor is just uh, so low. That you can get your haircut, you know, for less than a dollar, and get a really nice head massage, you know, uh, thrown in uh, for that price. And the barbers in India are just as good as uh, the barbers in the United States. I mean, it's not a super high skill uh, activity. It's been done for you know hundreds and thousands of years, thousands of years, um, and they're good at it, right? So, uh, and you think about well, what are the things which are cheaper in less developed countries? And they're all these services, right? So restaurant meals tend to be uh, cheaper, particularly if you, you know, buy your meals like a uh, a resident uh, would, like a tourist. Um, uh, um, massages, uh, anything involved. You know, it's why um, uh, when I was in India, uh, again, I had like a, you know, a driver, right? You know, I cannot afford a driver uh, in the United States. But in India, you know, for one, I'm too afraid to drive on the roads. Nobody who does not live in India should ever drive there. Um, but it's possible for, you know, somebody of middle class means to hire a driver, right? Uh, and this also, you see the same thing over time. So Agatha Christie kind of famously said, you know, when I was young, I thought uh, I would never be uh, rich enough to afford an automobile, nor poor enough not to be able to afford, uh, you know, a, a cook and a servant, right? And over time, of course, the cook of the servants became much more expensive and the automobiles became cheaper. So you see the same thing over time. What I'm saying is that you see the same uh, relationships between poor countries and rich countries as you see between countries in the past when they were poor and countries today when they're rich, namely prices of goods uh, have gotten low, um, while the prices of uh, services, uh, the richer the country is, the price of services are high. 
And probably the fundamental reason for this is that for a lot of services, not all, but for a lot, it's like really hard to increase the productivity. Okay? Like, you know, I mentioned barbers, you know, the technology of giving somebody a haircut that has not improved in like a thousand years, right? Uh, maybe the scissors have gotten a little bit sharper. You have, you have the clippers, um, now, you have the clippers now, right? You have the clippers now, right, right. So <laughs> that's a little bit better. Um, the famous example from William Baumel, who first kind of promoted this stuff, is uh, the uh, a concert. You know, so you have a uh, you know a, a four person uh, you know concertina or whatever you call it, and eighteen twenty. Okay, four people to do this particular piece. Takes them 40 minutes. Okay. And in 2020, it takes exactly the same amount of time, but no increase in the productivity of that live, you know, uh, uh, concert. But think about the alternatives for the musicians. Well, in 1820, those four musicians, they weren't, they weren't productive in doing anything. Right. I mean, you know, there was no major manufacturing for them to alternative for them. Today, those four musicians, pretty high skills, there's lots of alternative employment, uh, with, which is very, very productive. They're able to produce a lot. So the relative price of the service is going up over time. Like what do you have to uh, give up to get that four people to do a concert? Today, it's a lot more valuable, the stuff you're giving up, than it was in 1820. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, you're paying these people, doctors and teachers primarily, and they're, uh, they're, they cost more because human labor costs more. I mean, what about those, what about those graphs where we did show like the growth? I mean, we have a lot more people involved, right? So we have, we have, uh, you know, in education, you have professors, but you have the administrators, right? And at some point there became, at least at some universities, I don't know if at all universities, but administrators, you know, passed up, uh, uh, professors, a lot of them are doing, you know, things like, uh, you know, things, you know, you talk about, like the theory that this is all about, you know, climbing walls and, and such that's making the universities expensive. You're saying that that's probably not, uh, probably not what's going on, but you know, you do have armies of administrators that are enforcing, you know, everything from, uh, uh, title nine things to career services to, um, you know, counseling to, you know, uh, you know, basically all these things. And isn't that, you know, potentially, uh, having a big effect, isn't that cons consistent with, you know, the other skilled labor costs more, but, you know, we're hiring a lot more skilled labor for, uh, for, uh, you know, uncertain benefit. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't make the argument that, um, we're not wasting a lot of money and resources. Um, but actually when you think about it, I think about auto manufacturing, which has become, you know, much cheaper, uh, over time. There's also a huge amount of resources wasted in that the similar kinds of regulations and safety regulations and more HR people and, you know, the list goes on and on about all of the rules and regulations, the cafe standards and environmental standards. And so it's not entirely obvious that services are subject to more government regulation or overaccumulation of administrators than is the production of goods. You know, you and I see it because we're you know, involved in the education industry. But I think if we were in another industry, we would also have all these complaints about, you know, all the bureaucracy, which we have to do. Um, so it's not obvious that that's explaining the relative difference. You know, maybe over time, it's explaining some of the increase in costs, but why it affects these particular industries and also the same industries which are cheaper 
in developing countries, that again seems very peculiar, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also been... true, like to give you another example, like, you know, you mentioned uh, car repair. So car repair has become much more expensive relative to uh, cars, which have gone down in price, quality uh, adjusted. There's a bunch of examples like that. Uh, tailoring. So again, when I go to India, you know, I take some clothes and, you know, they'll, they'll make you a suit, right? Uh, you know, overnight, uh, which you cannot do here. So here we just buy a new, you know, buy new clothes. Um, it's just too expensive or, to, you know, nobody today like takes their shoes, not nobody, but hardly anybody takes their shoes to a cobbler. What's well, a cobbler? <laughs> you know, uh, because, and that's the reason for that is because it's just cheaper to buy new shoes than it is to repair the old ones because the old one repairing is a service activity, producing the new shoes as a manufacturing activity. We've just gotten much more productive at making shoes than repairing uh, shoes or cars. Yeah. I mean, I, okay. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. You know, whether, regu- whether universities are regulated more or less than, uh, uh, you know, car manufacturers. It's a good point though. The reach of universities, like I've never seen, you know, uh, you know, the reach of university regulations, I've never seen government try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, try to enforce sort of a sexual harassment regulation directly, you know, sort of micromanaging this stuff like they do at universities and have tribunals for, for students accused of sexual assault. So it's, it does seem a bit more, it does seem a bit more intrusive, but you know, the, the safety regulations and all I mean, that. Yeah, all I mean, think about, uh, you know, uh, Tesla, right? Uh, got sued, kind of a ridiculous case, not uncommon. Uh, because somebody, you know, said the N word to somebody else. And then that be suddenly becomes not a, you know, personal personnel dispute to be resolved by Tesla, but a hundred million dollar legal dispute. It's, it's kind of the same thing. And then Tesla to avoid that, you know, then they got to hire all of these people. It's, I don't think it's that different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, you know, that's, that's a good, that's a good point. The um, one thing, you know, one thing that is so sort of, that sort of made me a little bit, you know, I was taking it back a little bit in the pieces you say, you know, you often will say stuff like, Oh, uh, you know, we've chosen to consume more. We've chosen to do X. We've chosen to do Y. And, you know, right. you know, you know, you know, as well as I do that, that, you know, the process through which we're choosing this is different from whether we're choosing to buy automobiles or buy houses or, or whatever, you know, especially in, a, uh, you know, higher education, something of a market, although heavily, heavily sub- subsidized, right. um, lower education. I mean, we have, you know, the, uh, primary schools and high schools and such. I mean, this is just, this is government. I mean, this is not, you know, this is not a market. Um, right. and so, you know, is, is it possible that, you know, what naturally would have happened is as these prices went up, um, if there wasn't this, you know, government involvement, if there wasn't there these subsidies we would just you know if, if uh, our friend brian kaplan is right about education and really not doing anything we would have become smarter and just decided to consume less of it and consume the other stuff instead uh maybe but so this is pointing to what i think is a flaw in the standard libertarian if you want to call it that but in the standard argument that uh what explains the cost what explains the rising price of Education, healthcare is all of this bad stuff, regulation, right? Because the natural response, if that were the case, the natural response is to do what you just suggested and buy less of this stuff, right? Um, so you need some additional theory, which you hinted at, of why when the costs are going up, why when it is becoming so much more wasteful, are we yet doing more of it? So we have to explain on top of this, well, not only do we have rising costs, but we got bigger subsidies, okay? 
which like maybe it's true, but then you have to you use this. You need then two theories, and they have to be offsetting one another in just such a way that we're still buying more. Well, in contrast, the the Bommel explanation, right, is that we're getting richer. And so it's a very natural explanation that the same thing which explains the rising price, which is increased productivity, right? So the interesting thing about the Bommel explanation is that it's always it's all about relative prices. And so the explanation for why the price of healthcare is going up is actually that the price of all the alternatives, like what you could do with your money, buy a car, you know, by uh, computer technology, it's going down. These are two sides of the same coin. Really the same, it's really just one relative price, okay? And so the Baumol theory is that the more productive we get at making manufactured goods, the higher the price of services. So at the same time that the, so it's very easy to explain why you might buy more because with a rising price, because you're also getting richer. So it's the same theory which explains both parts. The rising price and buying more, one's a substitution effect, one's an income effect, both are happening at the same time and have the same cause. So the Baumol theory is a much more clean theory in that you don't need these two separate things, you know, the, the, the climbing walls and subsidies happening at just the right place. And also the Baumol theory, sorry to go on, I'll stop. Look, this is people have been complaining about the increase in the price of healthcare and education for well over a hundred years. So long before Medicaid and Medicare, uh, you know, you can go back to 1900 and people are saying it used to be so much cheaper, you know? Um, so these increases in prices have been happening for over a hundred years and they happen in all kinds of different countries. Uh, with all kinds of different education systems, healthcare systems. There's even some evidence, which is kind of remarkable, that you saw the same thing in the Soviet Union. So, you know, communist countries, no prices, you know, everything's regulated. And yet, they were becoming more productive in manufacturing at a faster rate than in services. And so they, too, were saying, hey, you know, we used to be able to go to the ballet, you know, uh, for much cheaper. Uh, healthcare used to be much cheaper. So even in the Soviet Union, the Bommel effect appears to explain some of what was going on there. Yeah. But, I, but you know, it's still, I mean, that's still the, so yeah, I, I appreciate the sort of Occam's razor uh, point, but, you know, assuming two things doesn't seem to be that much more complicated than, than assuming one thing. Um, and it's still, you know, I still sort of have the problem where, you know, you say we choose to consume, which is the, it's the, you know, the public education is just, it's a government budget. It's not a market. It's a completely different process. So, you know, like at the ballet, you people, if people don't like the ballet, if it's not useful, they can just stop going. They, if they don't, you know, if the public education is not doing anything for all that cost, yeah, it's, you know, they, they could, you know, uh, defy the teachers unions and, you know, go vote for new elected officials who are going to, you know, spend the budget, you know, the government budget on other things, but it's a much harder and much different process than just, you know, stop buying something, right? There's, there's, there's a, there's a more yeah. uh, potential here for government to just keep providing things that people, you know, they, they say they want, but they don't, wouldn't actually spend their own money on, uh, than there is in a market. I mean, I think that's sure there's some truth to that, but I think 
the public as a whole is pretty powerful over the long run. So I think, you know, we, we have more doctors and nurses per capita uh, over time, We've and we have more teachers uh, per student, you know, over, over time. And I don't see any big push against that. I, I think that's probably what people want. You know, people do go to the doctor more than they used to. Um, people do want to spend more on education uh, than they used to. Um, so I think if, if the public were really um, so, if it were, if it were just a, a matter of the public saying we're sick of this stuff, well, they might, they uh, might know, not be, I mean, there's, there's two different, there's two different way, you know, there's the difference between a human being, the same person making a market choice and a person making a sort of democratic choice. Right. So the, in the market uh, choice. Sure. Sure. So, but, but, so, but over time, I think the, I, I'm a little skeptical of democracy. Okay. Right. So I, I certainly, you're not going to have to go far to convince me that democracy is imperfect as all, all are, as, as are all systems. But I still think that on these big questions, like it's very easy to see on democracy how um, there are little tax loopholes which only benefit you know one corporation, and there's a whole bunch of you know tiny things in the law which just rent seekers have put them in. But on these big questions of how much we spend you know on the military, you know how much we spend on healthcare, education, I think the public mostly gets what they wants. Mm. So you th- you think okay? So that that's the yeah that's 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 in- that's interesting. I mean, I think they get what they want, but what they want is sort of a you know it's a philosophical question. I I think they get what they say they want, and if they had to actually make choices on their own, they would they would behave differently. They would you know shop around for the best you know school for their student. They would you know think about the choice more carefully. Um, they would do so. Yeah, I think you know quote unquote they want. You know, they they want you ask them in a poll. They'll say spend more money on education, spend more money on healthcare. You know, this stuff is all social desirability bias. Um, yeah. You know, are you know are we are we incentivizing them to make you know good and smart decisions even for themselves? You know that that that's the question. Yeah, but like I mean, on, on education, um, already people have a huge incentive um, to think carefully about where to send their kids to school, and we know this is a big factor in real estate prices. So I don't think, you know, uh, so I don't think adding, yeah, people would be more careful if they had to spend the dollar on the margin, but I don't think they're, they're not unaware of this. Is there um, healthcare, right? Like, like with healthcare, uh, yeah, you're not, you're usually not spending your money directly, but on the other hand, it is your health. (laughs) So you do have pretty strong incentives, at least to choose quality. Right, maybe not to save money, but at least to choose quality. Um, so the um, uh, privates. How how much do, does the typical is the typical private school tuition cost, and how much does it compare to what does it compare to a um, uh, to a public school? Have you have you looked into that? Because that this seems like it would be yeah. a natural way to differentiate between yeah. these theories. So it, the private school is sort of divided. On average, private schools are actually cheaper, which people don't believe. But that's when you take into account like all the Catholic schools and, you know, all things like that. Um, so if you're not sending your kid to like the local Christian or Catholic school, uh, you're, and you're sending them to a private school, it's probably more expensive. Um, uh, at least the price is higher. Uh, so there is that division, but overall the private schools, you know, and the charters are, uh, are cheaper. They're not, not hugely so. 
Uh-huh. And okay. w- you know, one thing about the private schools is a little bit different, but it actually, because it bothers me a little bit, is that you and I probably agree that education could be a lot better. Um, and yet the private schools do almost the same things as the public schools. Like, uh, just a, my own little peeve, I would have thought that the, uh, we should be teaching like memory palaces. Okay. You know, how to, how to teach children how to memorize, you know, big numbers, long lists and all this stuff and fast multiplication and division and, you know, all these tricks. They don't do any of that, you know, so it's not that different. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. So, I mean, when the, near the end of the, you know, monograph, you talk about, um, you know, productivity, you know, productive potential productivity gains in education. So potentially, you know, you can have one great professor who's there and he has, you know, thousands of, of students. Um, the fact that that, you know, I just, I just, when you talk about, you know, productivity gains in education, I just feel like, you know, I just feel that just that framing, it's like, we're not producing <laughs> if it's just signaling, right? Of course, you wouldn't expect that to work because the only reason Harvard is good is because not everyone can go to Harvard, right? And you know, there's a status thing where you're on campus and you're participating in, in life. So, it, you know, if, if let's say you know, it, it, let's say that um, uh, uh, online education never really takes off, and you know, in 10, 20 years, things look exactly the same as they do now. Do you do you think that that would be a uh, a strike against your theory and 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 the idea that we're even even to talk about productivity and education is sort of missing something? Um. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, the thing about the the Bommel effect overall is that it, it explains so many different uh, sectors: um, education, healthcare repair services, the arts, you know, things of that. So it's very difficult to get, you know, one theory, which is going to explain all of these uh, areas in as clean a way as the Bommel theory does. So whenever I, uh, you know, debate this topic or talk about this topic, you know, experts in the education, they, oh, well, you're probably right about healthcare, but education, no, I see all these waste, you know, all these cost increases. And then if someone's an expert in healthcare, oh, you're probably right about education, but healthcare, you know, right? So there's always going to be a plethora of industry specific explanations, but they don't have the, you know, one ring, one, one theory to rule them all power of the bomb theory. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, education, healthcare, there are reasons to think they're special. I mean, first of all, on, on that, you know, graph you present, they are way ahead of, um, you know, the, the price uh, increase is double that of, um, of uh, you know, car repair and whatever else. And then just sort of government spending, you know, that we spend on these things. It's yeah. just, it's, you're just further away from sort of market assumption. So uh, yeah, you've convinced, you've convinced me, you know, something, something is real there. I, I, but, you know, people really do care about healthcare and education and, you know, it's probably worth figuring out what's, what's special there and what we can do just because of the amount of resources you know that that yeah, we push sure. into it yeah. yeah no no that definitely i think we could do better for always we could do better i think we might you know it might be possible to have like a, a level effect but uh, uh so long as we have increased productivity you're still going to have the growth effect yeah, you believe you believe that you know we, we're doing something. You believe that there's um that there is a method of teaching. You said the private schools are not teaching as good as the public. You you think that there's a method of teaching that there's sort of low hanging fruit that nobody is using. Can you talk about that a little bit? I remember seeing a blog post on this. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so for decades, literally for decades, we have known that there's a method called direct instruction, which has been tested in serious randomized controlled trials. 
against other methods. And it always, almost always comes out on top in literally hundreds of studies. So not like, like one or two or three, hundreds, hundreds of studies uh, in education have shown that this method, direct instruction, uh, works better than other methods. And it actually makes sense in the sense that direct instruction uh, codifies for, you know, you're going to teach reading, you're going to teach uh, mathematics, you know, division, multiplication. It codifies a method of doing that. It tests that method repeatedly until uh, you have, you know, ironed out all of the kinks and then you write that method down, okay? And then teachers follow the script and they just follow the script, okay? And the teachers, by and large, <laughs> kind of hate this idea because uh, they want to be free-flowing and every student is different and, you know, different methods, different ways of thinking. And no, that's all wrong, okay? There is like one way of doing it. <laughs> That's, I'm exaggerating, but um, the method which really works is to figure out what's best and then mass manufacture, then have all the kids together. They work on it together and the teacher follows the script. And this method, although it looks, um, it, it doesn't meet the humanistic goals uh, of the teachers, it meets the goals of the students in that the students move through the material more quickly. They learn the material. They're not bored because they're learning more quickly. They're keeping up. And despite the fact that direct instruction has been shown to be superior in hundreds of studies, it has not uh, taken off uh, the way it's, it really it's should. Not about, it's, not, it's not about the, or it is, I mean, partly, it's only partly about the standardization, right? Is, does direct instruction mean, okay, like if I'm going to teach economics, I just put the supply and demand, you know, uh, the graph up there and I, I just keep beating in your head and you just keep like staring at it. How, how does it like work sort of operationally? Is it just, you know, telling you things instead of you figuring it out for yourself? Um, no, not, not really. It's, it, it involves a lot of, um, uh, a call, a call out to the class. Okay. You know, uh, what, what comes after this letter and then the, everybody shouts out. Okay. Um, so it involves kind of almost like a military, uh, you know, call and, uh, repeat. Uh, and so there's a lot of structure to it. There's a lot of structure to it. Um, but you can move through the material more quickly. So it's not, students don't think that it's boring. What people call like teaching to the, teaching to the test. Like there's just a right answer and we're just going to tell you what it is and we're not going to, you know, have any other frills or anything else. So the direct instruction would, is most applicable, you know, to um, uh, where there are a set of skills that you want people to learn, okay, as opposed to when you get into higher ed and you want to try and teach people how to, how to discover new knowledge, right? Um, that's a sort of a different, uh, different area where you need more one-on-one, -on -one, you know, kind of apprenticeship. Uh, training the way we have with graduate students, things like that. So it's not a way of um, getting rid of graduate school um, or apprenticeship uh, training. But for the reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, it's phonics-based, for example, right? You know, so the, the trend up until very recently 
has been literally the teachers say, well, you don't know what this word is. Well, look at the picture. Yes. Okay. Which is a totally unprincipled, literally unprincipled method of teaching. Okay. Like, oh, there's a dog. Guess that this word is dog. While what you really want to do is, you know, teach a phonics and the phonics method is a, uh, uh, you know, sound it out. Right. Well, why, and, why, hasn't some, yeah. why hasn't some just charter school or private school done this and then gone and shown their results to the state legislature or education researchers or whatever? And, you know, it's, it's not exactly a free market, but it's something of a market. You think they could yeah. do that? So there's a few examples of that. The, there's the uh, um, Tales Academy in uh, North Carolina. Um, they have done uh, just exactly what you uh, suggest. Um, yeah, why, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to start sounding like you. You know, there's a conspiracy in the teachers' unions. Um, there's been some uh, attempt to do it internationally. Uh, uh, schools have been doing it. But yeah, it just hasn't. And it's not that it's unknown. Um, but it hasn't taken over, that's for sure. Is it, as you said, the teachers uh, don't like it? Could the students not, might the students not like it? I mean, that doesn't sound like the funnest classroom experience. Is it just some parents are reacting to what students want and students just, you know, students want things other than just, you know, they, they don't even care if they're learning, but, you know, the parents want their kids to be happy in addition to them learning things that maybe right. this isn't conducive to human happiness. Right. As far as we can tell, the students are fine. The, the students enjoy it. Um, it's the teachers who feel that, they have been because you are following a script, so the teachers become actors, right? Uh, instead of becoming, you know, uh, entrepreneurs or artists, right? Where they are trying to come up with new ways, which is really silly when you think about it, right? Like there's some teacher in Nebraska who's going to come up with a new way of teaching reading, and that's going to be better than something which has been tested on hundreds of thousands of students and tried out in multiple different ways. Like, not only is that like really unlikely, um, it's sort of pointless in the sense that that teacher is going to teach, you know, 30 students per year for 30 years, like 900 students, you know, total in his career. Okay. So like it, the gains there are so little, um, which is why the standardization is important because you know, then if everyone is following the script, everybody gets the benefit of the improvement in productivity, right? So this goes back, does go back to what we're talking about with services like um, mass manufacturing, you know, why does it get cheaper over time? Well, because when you make an improvement and maybe it's just some like tiny improvement, you, you reduce the amount of material used by 1%, okay? Uh, you improve the you lower the defect rate, you know, by 1%. But you do that year after year after year. And then that builds up and you get mass improvements in productivity. But now if you have a 1% improvement in teaching quality, how does that scale? Right? It can only scale if people are following a script. And if they're not willing to do that, if teachers are not willing to kind of follow a script, then you're not going to get this improvement in productivity over time. Mm -hmm. Does, I mean, do, you know, is, does it, does it matter? I mean, in the, in the long run, cause you know, there's, there's learning loss. I mean, the people don't often don't remember what they do in school. I mean, is it, you know, the most important thing in the world, whether kids, you know, 
you know, get things that they, uh, you know, retrain things better when they're, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. This, this, maybe in a relative sense, it, it does because they can get better degrees and credentials. But, you know, does that necessarily make society more productive? I mean, societies, you know, which are better educated have better uh, outcomes on a wide range of um, metrics. So I think that's one thing which. Well, you know, I, I mean, there's, a, there's a big direction of cause. I mean, there's a big direction. Uh, of, of course. Causes. Yeah. Yes, of course. So, uh, but that is one thing which I think makes, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm pretty much behind, uh, you know, Brian argues, Brian Kaplan, you know, argues that um, a huge amount of the premium for education, as you know, is signaling. And I think that makes total sense, uh, particularly at the university uh, level. Like it's hard to understand why somebody who gets a degree in art history is paid more than somebody who went to, you know, work in a factory for four years, even if they end up in the same job, right? Um, it's got to be uh, signaling. But uh, it's not all, the engineers are not signaling. They're not only signaling. You know, I think Brian says like 50%, you know, is his sort of, you know, modal estimate of the amount. Well, 50% is not signaling. Let's improve that 50% the productivity of that 50%. And I would say the, as you get down to, you know, high school and even earlier then like, you know, 60, 70% is human capital building and only 30% is signaling. So let's improve that 60 to 70%. Yeah. Because you're getting, you're getting what basic reading skills, you're getting basic, basic, or, you know, arithmetic people just being able to, yeah. Uh, that, 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 yeah that. And it's, it's look, look, it's not natural to think logically. Um, and it's just not natural, you know, to, I mean, reading is not, a, it's not a natural thing to do. There's no other animal which reads as far as I know. Um, so reading is not natural, but it's incredibly important. Um, so yeah, I think mathematics is not natural. Um, so I, and it's kind of scary that, uh, the literacy rate in, even in the United States, um, when you measure at the adult, at the adult you know, the literacy rate, people who can read a paragraph and explain in their own words what that paragraph means, it's a surprisingly low percentage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we, you know, there, there's human limit. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, people cannot bench, you know, 250 pounds. You know? It's, <laughs> it's like, we're, you know, we're, you know, spark people look at that and they, you know, it's like a bodybuilder looking at, you know, people and saying, look at these puny weaklings. Like, it's really scary. They could all be, you know, they yeah. could all be Arnold Schwarzenegger. And sometimes I think, you know, we might not have, you know, realistic explanations here, but expectations here, but no, I, I think your, yeah. I take your point that, you know, we can, you know, we can hopefully, you know, have some improvements. Uh, you know, so the re a related topic to this is, um, is, uh, you know, the American, uh, American, uh, criminal justice system, um, you say mm, we're, mm. uh, under, under policed and over prisoned. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? What's the, what's the argument here? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, this defunding the police, I think is a crazy, <laughs> crazy idea. Um, and you know, some of my research has been on the effectiveness of, uh, police. And it's just kind of a hard question to, to study because uh, when you look at places where there's a lot of police, there's also a lot of crime, right? You know, for sort of obvious selection reasons, uh, you know, like people, you know, in hospitals die a lot, right? Um, so to untangle that causality, you got to kind of break the reverse causality from more crime to hiring more police. Um, and the way my colleague and I uh, do it, um, we look at there's this terror alert level 
in Washington, uh, D.C., uh, which it's a national. But, you know, when there's some chatter that something's going on in the Middle East and there might be an attack, this terror alert level goes from like yellow to orange. And the police in cities like D.C., they put up double shifts so you get more police on the street. So my colleague and I, John Click, measure well, what happens to crime in D.C. when you kind of randomly get a little bit of chatter in the Middle East. You randomly get more police on the street and crime goes way down. OK, uh, nothing else does. Nobody else cares about this thing. You know, nobody even knows when the terror alert level is high or, you know, low. But, do, they still uh, do, crime, do they still do this? Is the color code system? This was after 9-11. Do they still? How, how long have they been doing this? Yeah, yeah. They've when been doing it yeah, since since almost 9-11. So they're still um, doing it. The, the terror alert. Yeah, as far as I know, yeah, still yeah, yeah. Send Kyle out. Mm. Yeah, exactly. As far as I know, they're still doing it. Um, and so, using the estimates from our paper, as well as from many other papers in the literature, uh, we suggest like it would be perfectly reasonable to double the number of police uh, in the United States. And this sounds, you know, crazy. Except when you look at Europe, um, the United States actually underspends on police relative to a lot of other countries. You know, we think that we are a tough on crime uh, country and we are when it comes to prisons and the length of prison sentences. But when it comes to police, we're actually kind of under policed. You know, we're not, we're not a leading, we're not a mass, we're not a police, you know, we don't have lots of, we don't have as many police on this, on the street as do a lot of other um, developed uh, countries. So my view is that if we could change what it means to be tough on crime from throwing them in jail and, and throwing away the key to making sure that people are caught, to raising the probability that people are caught. So we need like more police on the street, more homicide detectives so that people get the message. If you commit a crime, you're going to be captured. You're going to be caught. Then we could have lower prison sentences. And deterrence would actually be greater because that's what really people care about. That's what they notice, the probability of being caught much more than the severity of the punishment if they are caught. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one thing, you know, one of my, you know, uh, first reaction to this, and maybe this is contradicted by, you know, what happens or what doesn't happen in DC, but I, you know, I think that a lot of these neighborhoods, I don't know if the people themselves are hostile to police, but at least sort of the, you know, uh, activists and the, you know, intellectuals who claim to speak for these, uh, communities are hostile to the police. And I think there, there's something about alliance with sort of the criminal element who, for obvious reasons, are also um, hostile to the police. Um, so the, you know, when you, my first uh, thought, when you say, well, double the American police presence, you're going to send them to the high crime areas. You know, I, I think that maybe the, you know, there'll be, there'll be riots. I mean, the first thing you possibly had, but yeah. it sounds like in DC, they do add these police to the streets and DC has, you know, African-American high crime areas. And apparently it doesn't cause riots or did you look for, there, was there any like, you know, you know, uh, a backlash to this that, you know, we could, we could see um, in the data. Yeah. Not in our study, but uh, I agree. It's a very complicated situation. Like the way I sometimes put it is that we need better policing so that we can all be comfortable with more policing. The views of people you know, in the inner cities or the high crime African-American areas are very conflicted um, because on average, if you ask, like they want more police. OK, so they are not in favor of defunding the police. OK, um, they, they typically want more police because they bear the brunt of crime at the very same time. Um, there are a lot of people who won't talk with the police. Right. 
who the, you know, snitches get stitches and things like that. Um, because in some places, the criminal element has basically become the major source of violence and authority um, in the region. They've taken over from the state, right? And so you begin to follow the mores and the rules of these local criminal gangs uh, rather than the rule of law of the country as a whole. So there's a bunch of um, stuff which is, you know, the kind of a paradoxical circle in that crimes don't get solved in the inner city. So people don't bother speaking to the police and they're also afraid to speak to the police because they know that the perpetrator is going to be back on the street or their friends are going to be back on the street or that somebody who uh, is a witness and who speaks to the police, they are also going to be. Um, so, you, so you get an equilibrium where people are afraid of speaking with the police because they could be killed and people are killed because their witnesses are afraid of speaking with the police. So you kind of need like a big push to kind of get out of that equilibrium so that people become willing to speak to the police. And then when they're willing to speak to the police, then the threat of them being killed for speaking to the police goes away. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's sort of, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm so pessimistic because you look at like, you know, you said more police, like, it seems like the, the, the things that cause like riots and breakdowns seem so stochastic. It's like you have one criminal who's, in, you know, who's been arrested, you know, 25 times and, you know, like he's the one who the entire community, like, I don't know if it's the entire community, but the people who want to go out and march in the streets, they're, they're the one, he's the one you get upset about. So it's like the cops could save, you know, 50 lives. They kill one criminal, <laughs> one lifetime yeah. criminal. And, you know, the, 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 you know, the neighborhoods will burn down. It's just a very, you know, sort of tragic uh, situation. It just seems like, like, yeah, that, that would be, you know, great. So it seems like, you know, if you didn't have that sort of backlash effect, uh, great police, you know, more police would be a great option. It's just, you know, very, very complicated. It seems like you're always one bad incident away from, you know, everything blowing up. And, you know, you could have, you could say you have better policing, but, you know, it's it's never perfect. And, you know, it's like the, the social, the, the dynamics here are like, you know, often it'll come out the entire story that the media was pushing and these activists pushing mm. were completely false. And it, it like still doesn't matter. So even if the police are perfect, it seems like you still get these incidents. And I just think it's a, uh, it's a, it's very yeah. difficult. Yeah. I think one of the things that I worry about most, um, and I know you've thought about is just the general decline in trust um, in the United States as well as uh, elsewhere. But in the United States, like trust in your fellow you know, man is declined trust in uh, any authority has uh, declined and that has particularly bad consequences when it comes to policing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not totally, you know, I, I, I don't think the trust is a one-sided thing. I think some kind of skeptical of governance, we've I mean, talked about how the public health, you know, communities have failed. I, I you know, I, I remember uh, I, I read, was it, uh, Maybe it was maybe it was Brian who wrote about, uh, and he was in Italy, and the police were like, you know, enforcing the mask mandates, like with you know, with gusto. And I don't know if that's yeah, yeah. a trust thing or whatever, but like it seems like a lot of the resistance to sort of the bad things American government does uh, is right. based on this, you know, lack of trust. So you know, I think there's there's plus, yeah, not trusting, not trusting the police, um, especially when our no, police, that's... you know. It's, it, I think are not that bad. Like I've been in countries where like, you know, you have to give bribes to police, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I think globally, I think we have very, very good police and, you know, uh, I think distrust there, I think is, you know, particularly poisonous. Uh, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I, you know, we have very good police. Uh, you and I probably do. 
um, people in some of the inner cities, maybe less so. Um, but also there's this paradox which bothers me, which I would love it if people had less trust of government and sort of more trust of markets. But these things are very hard uh, to disentangle. So it, it, it seems more to be the case that either you have a generalized trust in your fellow man or you, or you don't. And so countries actually, which have a lot of trust, have less regulation uh, because they figure, well, things, you know, the corporations will do what they're supposed to do and they'll be pretty good overall. And uh, so, you know, uh, 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 we can, we don't need all of this oversight and bureaucracy and stuff like this. Well, when you have distrust, uh, you get distrust in markets and distrust in government and you still end up with more government. So I think that's a problem, uh, disentangling these two things. People don't seem able to do that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. So yeah, you have these, you know, I think you're thinking about the Scandinavian countries, you have high trust, you have in a certain sense, maybe less regulation than the U S but, you know, they spend more of the higher taxes and more of their, uh, you know, GDP per capita or GDP on government. Um, the GDP per capita is, 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 uh, you know, lower. I'm pretty sure in all these countries, except Norway, which has oil. And especially if you can, if you like, given their high human capital relative to us, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, surprising. So I I don't know. It's, it seems like the, um, you know, maybe, you know, it's like market, the great thing about markets is like, you don't have to trust them for, for them to work. You know, you can, if you just distrust government that don't want it to do stuff, um, the markets will, you know, will emerge, um, just because people buying and selling and, and wanting things. But yeah, it's, it's very, it's interesting. Do you think the, you, you know, the U S you compare to Europe, is Europe the right, you know, comparison, because you can compare them, you know, based on, um, you know, like a wealth level of development, but we really look, if you look at like murder rate, we look more like a Latin American country um, than we do a European country. And not not the worst Latin American countries, but we look more like, you know, maybe a, a lower end Latin American country than a Northern European or, or even a Southern European country. Um, you know, does it, does it uh, you know, is, is our, you know, under, is when you look at this, you know, policing and the, the prison populations, is it, is it different depending on, you know, where you're comparing, comparing to? Uh, yeah, and again, it's complicated because um, we are we're a high murder society, high homicide society, but yeah. on other measures of crime, we're not a high crime society. Well, do you, like, do you, you, trust, know, you trust those other? I mean, I think murder is the one that we can you know measure. All the other ones are, <laughs> you know, if yeah. you, you know, when you go to a high crime neighborhood in the U.S., it's all like, oh, this this neighborhood has a lot of murder, but don't worry, you're not going to get caught. <laughs> Usually, it tends to be a very high correlation between those things. Uh, that's that's true, but at least as far as we can tell, um, you know, auto theft is also uh, pretty well reported because usually you get you get insurance. I mean, I may, you know, I don't know. It's, you know, you're you're right that uh, homicide is kind of the best uh, reported, um, but at least as far as we can tell, the United States the United States actually does pretty good on rape and robbery, and you know, so it looks like like guns are kind of what makes a big difference. Guns and you know, um, murder rates, are, of course, are particularly high in African American uh, communities. So these two things put together um, kind of uh, give us a uh, outlier on uh, homicide, but on the other things, we're not, yeah, we're not that, we're not that high yeah. crime society. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I saw some data, you know, Sweden is, you know, high on sexual. So I'm like, you know, how does yeah. Sweden, they're very liberal people, how do they define? I'm sure it's like college yeah. campuses where they say, you know, 70% of women have been raped or something. Right. Like, right. You look at the data and it's not very uh, uh, trustworthy. Uh, so, uh, Alex, is there anything, you know, interesting or, uh, uh, you know, anything you're particularly excited about that you're working on now? Um, let's see. I got to. Yeah, a bunch of this pandemic stuff, which is still coming out. Um, let's see, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff in India I'm doing. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm trying to, I guess, crypto, I guess. Uh, it's one of my side interests. Um, I advise a bunch of uh, different firms, uh, startups. And so I've kept a toe uh, in that world. And that's always interesting because they come to you with uh, different problems. And uh, so I have a little bit of business interests and things like that. It's always fun. Do you uh, are you optimistic about the uh, long term trajectory of crypto? Um, I'm optimistic enough to think that uh, it's worth some of my time to make a bet on it. Um, and here, okay, here's here's what really worries me, and I'll, I'll I'll think about it this way: if we get a central bank digital currency (CBDC), CBDC, um, this would be extremely useful. And I think could wipe crypto uh, out. So a central bank digital currency would have all of the benefits of lower transactions costs and, you know, easy to make, um, uh, 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 you know, e easy to make decisions across countries and so forth and so forth. But a CBDC would mean that the government would be able to track every single exchange, every single economic transaction, which occurs anywhere at any, at any point in time. Um, it would really would give them the eye of Sauron, you know, onto everything which is uh, going on in a way which we have never experienced before. So, and the only alternative to that, uh, the only alternative to a central bank digital currency, I think, is a privatized crypto uh, currency, something like Zcash, which maintains uh, privacy. So I do think we're, we are coming to kind of a split. And if we don't go for a private, uh, privacy preserving digital currency, then we're almost certainly going to get a central bank driven one, which whatever promises they give us in the beginning, the temptations to use that for control of the economy and private life are going to be so large that I'm very, very concerned about that. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this question. So, I mean, I, you have to have the Apple Wallet now, and it's it's amazing. I can have a. I don't know if you ever go to David Buster's, but the you know the the place where you do you play games. But now yeah. you can get a David Buster's card on your phone, and you just hold it up to the machine, and you could just play. It's it's in the Apple Wallet. It's great. I always lose these cards, and there's just you know it's so easy. What's what's stopping there? Like I've bought Bitcoin before, even on Coinbase. What's what's stopping me from using it? Like I use Apple Pay. Just scan my phone and send Bitcoin to people. Like it, it's a little more complicated than that. What, what's what's the what's the what's the sort of uh what's what's preventing that right so your your apple pay ultimately is uh, running on the rails of the dollar okay and those are kind of um old uh, rails but they do work and they work everywhere uh with the bitcoin right um you know we still have the double coincidence of wants uh problem in that I may have someone, I'm, I'm, I may have someone, some, and want to buy something. But in, if you're the seller, 
Like, what are you going to do with the Bitcoin? Like, you also have to want the Bitcoin and have to be able to give it to somebody else to get what you want. So we really, it's really hard to get into that uh, equilibrium. While the Apple Pay, since it relies on dollars, they know it's easy to get the dollars. Is it just there's so I mean what's preventing I mean Venmo right now I could send you I could send you a dollar right in, in five seconds exactly. um, Bitcoin yes. is a, a little more complicated why can't I mean why can't we uh, like me and you we both let's say I want to give you a Bitcoin and you want to spend it on other things well what's stopping them why can't there be a Venmo for for Bitcoin there could um, there could I mean it is good it is expensive because um, the the number of tra- as you know the number of transactions which Bitcoin can handle uh, per second. Is relatively low, which means that Bitcoin is very good for. If you want to send me a hundred thousand dollars, then no problem. Let's do it through Bitcoin. If you want to send me ten bucks, then it's going to cost us, you know, fifteen or twenty-five uh, to do that transaction. Um, well, and the bigger problem is that while I might want Bitcoin, and maybe you have some to give, uh, that's a pretty rare. <laughs> You know, that's a pretty rare uh, coincidence that uh, you have some and I want it. That's pretty rare. Like even in even in George Mason, you know, uh, in the economics department, how many people really want Bitcoin? Not that many. So this, this would be solved if this would be solved if, say, tomorrow everyone woke up and wanted Bitcoin. But it's still it, there's a but the, you say that there is a transaction cost. If I want to send you like a dollar there, what it uses yes. energy or something, there's something that's preventing that. Correct. Now, there are other cryptocurrencies uh, where that is not the case. Like I'm an advisor to Elrond, which uses e-gold, and we could send, you know, thousands of dollars for pennies. Um, so, but for Bitcoin, that that is going to be the case. And that will always be the case uh, for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is going to be a better store of wealth. Um, it's never going to be a medium of exchange. But other cryptocurrencies could definitely be mediums of exchange as well. But you have to build up a big enough base that you have two people, one of whom wants to give and one of whom wants to receive. And that's not easy. Got it. Uh, so I am, uh, you know, this is, uh, I want to ask you something while I, I've got an economist here. Um, I don't know if you've ever written about this. Maybe you have a martyr marginal revolution, but I can't recall off the top of my head. We're recording this on the afternoon of September 27th. Um, do you know anything about the U- European energy markets? Because apparently today there was a Nord Stream, there was damage to Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. The Russians accuse like the Americans, the Americans, and I don't know if the Americans have said it, but some people are saying it's the Russians. Uh, do you have, have you been studying the European energy situation? Do you have any idea of how bad it's going to get and sort of, you know, how it's going to, uh, how these things are going to play out? Um, you know, as of today, I'm very concerned about it. Um, you know, as, as you well know, they have been decommissioning nuclear plants and uh, they have walked right into you know, kind of a trap where they are dependent upon uh, Russian uh, oil. And now, yeah, the Russian oil, either it was going to be stopped because Putin was going to turn the, uh, uh, you know, turn the handle off, or now there's some sabotage. It's like, I haven't been able to figure out, like, who would want to do this? Like, why would Putin want to blow up the line instead of just turning the tap off? I don't quite understand that. Um, so it's unclear who would want to do this. Well, the U.S. But, has wanted to stop Nord. I mean, the U.S. has tried to stop Nord Stream. Um, right. 
it seems a pretty big step to take that without the you know with against the wishes of the Europeans. That seems like pretty brazen. Uh, so yes, anyway. it, it, the U.S. is one <laughs> somewhat. It seems a little bit implausible that the U.S. would blow it up, um, but you know you never know. Um, uh, certainly the, but yeah, the, the timing doesn't seem right to me. To but you know I'm not an expert on these. Uh, these questions, but I do think you know if we have a bad winter, um, then it's going to be very tough. It's going to be very tough for Europe, and they're already you know facing inflation. Energy prices are higher than they've ever been, and you, all the potential for for the unexpected, uh, this blowing up of the line being just one example of that. But you think about what happened in Texas. Uh, you know, with we had a terrible um, ice storm, right? And the Texas electrical grid basically went down uh, and it could have gone down even more than it did. Um, and aging infrastructure, you know, we're not, we haven't been building plants. We haven't been uh, uh, reconditioning and keeping up with uh, transmission lines. So yeah, if, if Texas can go down, then Germany can go down, you know, even more likely. France is even not looking great. You know, France has, has did not shut down the nuclear power plants, and yet they're still having trouble. Mm. The um, so there was a concern at the beginning of the war that the um, that there would be a you know starvation because of wheat. Apparently, you know, markets adjusted because wheat is just you know one product, and there are substitutes and right. all that. Um, how much you know does does that have lessons for energy? I mean, how how. You know, what's the time scale and how easy is it and how, you know, how affordable is it for Europe to go off? Right. You know, because I think that's the goal to go off uh, Russian energy. Um, yeah. Is that something that could be done within so one think, or two years or, yeah. or not really? So uh, I think the wheat issue is a little bit of a uh, red herring in that it was true that um, the Ukraine, excuse me, Ukraine, we're supposed to say, you can't say the Ukraine anymore. And get in trouble. <laughs> it was true that Ukraine was responsible for even countries have pronouns now. <laughs> was responsible for a a large share of the exports of wheat. But the most countries, most of the wheat is used internally, so the exports were actually a small share of total wheat production. Right. Um, so the the decrease in the total amount of wheat was much smaller than the decrease in the export. So again, so that was a little bit of a, a of a red herring. Um, now, how quickly can Europe um, uh, respond? So they have paused some of the nuclear uh, plant shutdowns. Uh, first, they said, no, 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 that's totally impossible. But then <laughs> when push came to shove, um, they were able to uh, do some of that. The U.S. is exporting a lot of liquid natural gas. And I don't know, I, I, again, this is, this is beyond my uh, knowledge, but we have been increasing our exports of uh, LNG. And one, you know, if I don't think Europe is going to starve, you know, we could always, um, in, in, a, in a pinch, could uh, uh, increase that um, uh, route. I don't know by how much, but, uh, but it's going to be costly. It's going to be costly. Unfortunately, Europe is rich. You know, they can afford it. But it's not going to be cheap. Yeah, and I, I, I've been, you know, surprised through this. I would have thought that 
you know, serious economic damage. I would have thought they would have, you know, changed their foreign policy. But now, you know, I don't think that. I don't think there's any hint that the uh, that they're gonna, you know, stop supporting Ukraine in the war. So it's gonna be, uh, yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's gonna be pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, the democracies was- have turned out to be tougher than uh, I think a lot of us uh, uh, expected. Certainly, more they've been tougher than Putin expected. You know, Putin was kind of, I think, going along the view that oh, they're just namby pamby, you know, fat, fat, you know, uh, blowhards. And they'll cave, and uh, yeah, we haven't. Yeah, that's true. Although I mean, we'll we'll, we'll see. It's still, I mean, yeah. it's still early. We have we no, haven't we haven't hit, yeah we haven't hit, we haven't hit winter yet. Um, Italy yeah. had just elected a. They're not you know they're not there's there's still supporters of Ukraine. The woman who's going to be the prime minister, um, but oh. you know some people in her coalition are are a little bit you know more uh, more uh, you know more let's say dovish on the on the Ukraine question. So yeah, there's yeah. still there's still a lot of politics in, that will in we'll general on many many things. My uh, my view on what is possible has just expanded. Mm. Right, the variance of the world is much yeah, higher. Yeah. Then, you know, like the 1990s, the great 1990s, everything was like working out logically sort of the way it should. You know, countries were becoming more market oriented and China was getting richer and he was getting rich. And then, you know, since 2001, just the number, the, 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 the possible things which can happen, Trump being elected, like just seemed like crazy, you know, that that could possibly happen or, you know, uh, just, yeah. I, you know, I, I think that's crazy things that can happen. Yeah, I think that's true, but at the same time, I've sort of yeah, that that's true. Like COVID, and uh, you know, I would have never thought governments could you know have lockdowns for you know the yeah. you know the entire country. I would have never thought we would have stood for that. That knew much less yeah. what China does. Um, nuclear it could be a nuclear weapon could go off. The the, yeah. the possibility of that, I think the experts are not like ten percent. You know, that's like that's stunning. That's t- horrible. Ten percent. <laughs> That that is at the same time. I do think you know. I do think there is a sort of. Um, I think in the last you know ten twenty years, I do think that I, I've grown more sort of uh, uh, um, optimistic about the sort of stability about the uh, American led world order. So like five ten years ago, it looked like China you know might just it might become a giant Hong Kong. It could just get growing at five percent and with one point four billion people, it's shooting itself in the foot. Not just with COVID, which is the big thing, uh, but also like you know she has like turned anti capitalist and. Like you know, starts to like attack people for making money, and you know this is not going to be good for uh, them economically in the long run. Their birth yeah. rates have you know uh, they'll try to get that up, but they're, they've also gone uh, down from not it wasn't very high to start with. So China looks like less serious of a competitor. Yeah. Russia I sort agree. of looked like maybe ideologic, maybe ideologically it could have some kind of um, you know uh, people affinity. The, the people on the right could have some kind of affinity to it. I think that died with you know the invasion of Ukraine and you know the West yeah. is you know completely united uh, against Russia. Um, Muslim terrorism once seemed like it was a much bigger deal than it was 10, 15 years ago. That doesn't seem like much. You know they get they, they can. They can control some ungoverned spaces at the corners of the world, but you know we don't wake up thinking about terrorism every day. So it does seem like sort of this idea that it's just going to be America leading and sort of Europe, and you know, as it's you know, as it's a uh, you know, uh, Robin to its to its Batman, and that's going to sort of run the world indefinitely. <laughs> that looks right. more likely, right. sort of, uh, that I would have thought, you know, five, ten, fifteen years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that I think that yeah, other countries shooting them in, themselves in the foot as. I think there's something there's something to that. Of course, the United States, although I agree with what you're saying, um, I think that's true. Uh, the U.S. has just lost so much social capital um, that I think it's hard to it's going to be hard to get that back. 
Um, you know, our democracy just looks kind of a joke at times, you know, like when we, when you, when you have these, you know, Vikings invading the Congress, like, you know, we just look like a joke. Um, and you know, pandemic policy was pretty bad and we just, so, but you're right. We're still the, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed person. <laughs> well, the, the aesthetics of things like January 6th and, you know, Trump's election and thing, you know, it's ugly. And, you know, again, if you care about, you know, national pride, you could say this is very embarrassing, but then you look at like sort of Trump and like, you know, it's not like the GDP collapsed. Um, you yeah. know, the crime rate went up. doesn't look like it's Trump's fault. It looks like the other side, the other side's fault. Um, you know, the COVID thing. But around the world, people are just, they you know, People like from India, for example, um, they used to come to the United States and stay in the United States. Uh, same with China. Uh, and now they're going back because the growth is there. The opportunities are there. And, you know, our democracy no longer looks like uh, it no longer looks like you need to emulate us in order to be rich. So there's a lot of ways of getting rich. So I think just the again, the space of possibilities has just gotten much bigger. You know, liberal democracy looked like end of history looked like the only way to go. But now I think the space of possibilities has um, just expanded. Though I, I, I think you're right. Um, China is not the threat. Yeah, the yeah, but exactly, but exactly, right? So India is a capitalist, you know, democracy. Um, China was, I mean, the China model was the potentially the alternative. Yeah. Now I just saw a headline, they're going to grow lo- slower than the rest of Asia for the first time in, th- you know, 30 years since Deng Xiaoping's uh, reforms or, you know, slightly after that. And so it's just like, it's just like, you know, the, the, you know, there doesn't seem like China was the only real contender as something, but you could have this technocratic government that does standardized tests and doesn't worry about democracy and you know china was never a very charismatic country where people people but people i think admired that okay they have a lot of growth and it sort of works but you know with you know them masking forever and you know being afraid of covid and you know destroying their own economic growth for that and you know closing up to the world it seems like you know the u.s the liberal democracy is going to win by the fault by default i mean there's there's really nobody else showing up (laughs) yeah so yeah this was this was fun, Alex. I mean, people could follow you on Marginal Revolution. They could follow you on on Twitter. Anywhere else you would like people to sort of keep up with your work? Yeah, tw- yeah, you'll find most of it on Twitter. Marginal Revolution, where you should go. Yeah. Okay, great. All right, all right, Alex. I appreciate it, and uh, yeah, great talking to you. Great, good talking to you.